Hello and welcome to the University of Richmond Law Review podcast. My name is Ollie Ward and I'm the online editor of the Law Review this year. This is the first interview in a series of interviews about the effect of COVID-19 on legal practice, amongst other topics, uh, which I hope you'll find useful as the pandemic continues to spread across the country and indeed the world. Today we're joined by Jacob Tingen, who is an immigration attorney at Tingen Williams in Richmond, a firm he started in 2012. Jacob also teaches an immigration rights course here at the University of Richmond, and he hosts a podcast called Nation of Immigrants, which I'd encourage anyone listening to this episode to check out. And I'll add a link to his show in our show notes, along with some other reading that motivated some of our discussion. Uh, A quick warning, this was recorded on Monday, July the 13th. And at one point during the interview, I asked him about the recent ICE rules regarding international students, which the government had announced the previous week and were all over the news. Uh, then on Tuesday, July the 14th, those regulations were rescinded, which is obviously great news, but also means that some of the discussion has been overtaken by events. Uh, just goes to show what a dynamic and unpredictable area immigration law is right now. Jacob, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you about your personal background and how you came to practice immigration law after graduating from the University of Richmond in 2012, I think it was. Yeah, so um, so I graduated in 2012 and, and took the bar and was just kind of getting into things and looking at my options. It was a difficult economy for graduating attorneys at the time, uh, and, and I had some difficulty finding work. So um, I just decided I would hang out a shingle and start practicing. Um, and one of the great things that I'd done as a student at a University of Richmond uh, School of Law was um, I participated in a number of pro bono legal projects. So I reached out uh, to one of the projects that I'd been involved in, which was um, an immigration clinic that um, a local lawyer was doing at the Virginia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And I said, hey, uh, I'd like to take a couple of cases if possible, uh, you know, because I wanted to get my name out there and, and start working. And then he responded and said, hey, how would you like to take a couple hundred cases? <laughs> uh, so I'd left a voicemail. He called me back. And, um, and so I met with my wife after that and said, hey, what do you think? Um, is, this, is this even doable? Um, and we talked about it and I got malpractice insurance <laughs> and, uh, and said, yes, um, there were a number of things that were happening. This lawyer was transitioning from one practice to another, right. um, and had taken on a large pro bono caseload and couldn't take all of his cases with him. So, um, I ended up with a lot of those cases, uh, and after a number of years, um, felt pretty successful with how I managed the caseload and how I helped the clients, um, and that's pretty much how I got started. Uh, since then, I had a partner in 2015, uh, Ben Williams, and, and he's been excellent. Um, and so together, we've kind of been growing since then. Um, we ha- currently have four attorneys and about eight staff and are trying to figure out how to practice law in the midst of what appears to be an ongoing pandemic. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how I got started. Did some immigration law as a law student, and and now that became kind of my core practice area uh, as a practicing attorney. And I definitely want to get into um, sort of post COVID practice, uh, but I, mean, I guess the oh. other big big turning point in your career since 2012 was the change of um, political administration. And I was wondering what it's been like uh, since since 2016 2017 in terms of how you 
practice uh, immigration law and the kinds of challenges um, that you, you faced in recent years compared to under uh, President Obama. Right. Yeah. So the, the Obama versus Trump, uh, you know, so uh, again, so I graduated in 2012. So I don't have the advantage that maybe an attorney who's been practicing uh, even longer might have where they could even compare Bush years. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would say that it's the, the differences are stark and um, you know, they're wide ranging uh, Trump, the Trump administration response to immigration feels like a full-on assault to the entire immigration system and, and to immigrants in general. Um, and, and whereas the Obama administration uh, didn't feel like necessarily embracing immigrants um, 100%, uh, Obama was, um, I think in retrospect, uh, more of a centrist than people realized and uh, was, was heavy on enforcement when it comes to immigration. Uh, but they were trying to do things in a way that that was rational and made a lot of sense, um, at least from an enforcement perspective. Uh, I think it would be a stretch to say that our immigration laws make sense. <laughs> um, there are a number of there are a number of problems, um, but I think the, the area where you'll see the most contrast is um, something that I call prosecutorial discretion. Uh, and and that, that's what the Obama administration called it too. So um, while Obama was president, a number of proclamations came out saying, hey, look, we're enforcing immigration laws, but we have limited resources. So to enforce uh, our laws in the most efficient way possible, these are the priorities for deportation. Um, and they focused on people who had a criminal history uh, or very recent entrance uh, to the United States across our borders. Um, and if you didn't fit within those categories, uh, if you showed up to removal proceedings and you didn't have a criminal history and you had, you know, some kind of tie to the U.S., uh, I could probably go in and ask the government attorney to administratively close your case. And, and that was still, you know, a thing. And, and right. it, to the point that it was kind of frustrating where I'd prepare a case for an actual individual hearing, like a trial, um, and then we'd go in ready to fight for asylum and then even though they denied administrative closure previous to that date, we'd come in, the government attorney would offer it, and I'd explain to my client, look, I, I can't tell you the judge will definitely grant your case, but if the government's willing to admin close, I can guarantee that that's going to happen. And so sometimes after preparing a case, a client would just take that deal. Right. Um, and that happened often under Obama. I wanted to ask about some of the more under the radar ways in which the current administration has has put a kind of chill on immigration, even before the pandemic. Uh, obviously, we've had a number of very high profile executive orders and proclamations and so on from the president himself. But at lower levels of government, how does it all play out in practice in your experience? Yeah, yeah. So looking at specific policies, um, you know, so like I was just talking about the prosecutorial discretion and the administrative closure of cases in court. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, and, and, and these specific procedures in court are definitely things that are under the radar that people don't pay attention to. Uh, but under the Trump administration, they tried to eliminate judges' discretion to administratively close cases. Um, and here in the Fourth Circuit, um, you know, it's been ruled that, no, 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 immigration judges can still administratively close cases. Um, but there was uh, an AG decision kind of limiting that discretion. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, requests for evidence have gone way up. Um, you know, I've, I read or was at, at a 
presentation with another lawyer who mentioned that um, requests for evidence when it comes to H-1B visas had increased 300 to 400% since the Trump administration took over. Um, we're seeing that a lot in our practice too. We're seeing RFEs for um, some things which I find a little absurd. Um, we're, we're also finding a little more preciseness in the evidence that's being asked for, so which I kind of appreciate. Um, so, um, for example, we're, we're seeing that they're being very uh, specific on the kinds of identification evidence that you should use, um, the kind of the form of birth certificate that's accepted, those kinds of things. So yeah. in one way, um, it, it does, you know, allow for a greater degree of certainty with some of the applications where it's mm -hmm. all like, OK, well, we know that they're looking for specifically this evidence. Um, but in a lot of different ways, uh, I mean, I'd say on the whole, it's, it's, um, it's not good. So since the pandemic began, we've had travel bans from, from China, Iran, most of Europe, uh, the UK and Ireland in March, and more recently Brazil. Um, there have also been a number of restrictions on legal immigration um, put into place, like the restrictions on H-1B visas, which is basically like a, a short-term work visa. Uh, can you speak to some of those a bit more and give us your perspective on on how that's played out in the, in the U.S.? Yeah, so so there was an original ban, I guess, that was issued, uh, a proclamation uh, in, in kind of mid to late April, where um, under the guise of protecting the U.S. labor market during coronavirus, um, immigration was severely limited to the United States. And there were certain exceptions to that, um, you know, and, and as you're aware, and, and um, that kind of ban, it, it was only supposed to extend for about 60 days. Yeah. Now it has been extend, expanded um, in June, it looks like for another, for additional 60 day increments. But from what, from the reports I've read, you know, just through the end of the year, at least, hmm. um, and, and so what's, what's fascinating to me is when in March, the, the news reports that I was reading, uh, I was reading about how COVID is affecting our, our nation, how it's affecting, for example, our food supply chain, uh, how it's affecting uh, our medical capacity here in the United States. And at the beginning, all of the news articles I saw were focused on, oh gosh, we need immigrants to help our food supply chain. <laughs> we need right. immigrants to help us in our medical sector. We need immigrants to help us in our tech sector, right? And, yeah. and so I, I had hope for a brief moment. Okay, you know, now finally as a nation and as under this administration, we'll see that immigrants bring all of this positive material to, to the table in the United States. Uh, I kind of dreamed for a moment. Uh, maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll turn around. Maybe it'll be easier. And then this ban came along, which just kind of flies in the face of, the fact that we need to, <laughs> that we need people, we need immigrants right. to shore up our food supply problems and, and other problems that might come as a result of coronavirus. Instead, we're using coronavirus as an excuse to exclude people. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. So, um, so were there any exemptions carved out for medical professionals or doctors or, or people who might? Yeah, I, I, I saw the, the April one definitely carved out exceptions for uh, medical personnel and, uh, and work visas based on, on medical personnel. And then also immediate family members um, of, of U.S. citizens. So immediate relatives, a term of art, immigration law. Um, and it includes people who are the spouse, child, or parent of, of U.S. citizens. Right. Um, 
Although, as I'm looking <laughs> uh, at the June proclamation, it doesn't exempt all immediate relatives, just any alien who is the spouse or child, uh, not immediate relatives. So that's, that's an interesting uh, update. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're being very particular. The Trump administration is being very particular in excluding as many people as possible. It's, it's shocking. Yeah, in many ways, it seems like, um, you know, Trump and Stephen Miller got got the kind of immigration environment they were pushing for the whole time, which is hardly anyone coming in. Uh, Right, right. And they're turning people away at the border, too, under the same guise. So generally, people who would have been allowed in under our asylum laws, under some kind of interview process where they articulate a credible fear, they're being turned away as well. And that's really um, sad. Because just because there's a virus uh, doesn't mean that people aren't trying to harm them in their home countries. So, And have you had many clients come to you about asylum issues? How, how feasible even is that right now? Um, we, we've, had, we've had some, but it is, it is very depressed in terms of the numbers of people that are coming in. Right. Um, so, you know, has it affected my practice? Absolutely. Um, but again, we're also seeing a number of people coming in finally who have hearings coming up. And then we have to explain to them, uh, the courts are in flux. Thank you for coming in. Uh, you absolutely do need to take action on your asylum case. Asylum, uh, you should typically apply for a year after having come in, before a year of having come in to the United States. And so we tell them, look, you, you need to take action. But, um, you know, unfortunately, you may not have this hearing. Um, and so the, the, the courts have been closed to all non-detained hearings. Um, individuals in master calendar hearings for a long time. Um, and, and I think through the end or near the end of July as well. So, um, you know, we, we're encouraging clients who come in who have, you know, potential asylum claims to go ahead and file. Uh, but we're not able to take a whole lot of action on those cases until the courts reopen. And uh, I wanted to ask you about something else that, that seems particularly uh, troubling um, there was a BuzzFeed article the other day about uh, a government watchdog group um, no longer conducting on-site inspections of immigration facilities because of the coronavirus, um, which which makes you wonder about the people inside of those facilities. And presumably social distancing simply doesn't apply in places like jails and detention centres and courts. So what's been going on uh, in those kinds of places? Yeah, I, I think that's been been the big issue when it comes to things like, for example, um, the immigration courts. Um, so master calendar hearings, typically it's a crowd of 40 people um, and they all come before the immigration judge. And, and you know, it, it's a calendaring hearing. It's, it's determining when they can be heard, what kinds of claims they might bring to defend against a deportation. And so it's impossible to social distance. Uh, even with masks, it's impossible to, to not mix and mingle and rub elbows. Um, so in the context of jails and prisons, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I find it truly problematic, uh, for people to end up in, in, in an immigration detention center right now. So, um, you know, if people are in immigration detention centers right now, it's, it's, it's an enforcement, uh, issue. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting to me, uh, is that, you know, you're not in immigration jail because you're a criminal. I want to clarify that you're in immigration jail because you violated an immigration law and immigration laws are civil in nature. Right. Uh, immigration proceedings, removal proceedings are, are civil proceedings. So you're not a criminal. You've not committed a crime. That's not what anybody's saying. And yet you're in jail 
uh, and possibly at risk for contracting a virus in conditions that are less than ideal. Um, so I, I, I would find it difficult to justify um, keeping large groups of immigrants in close quarters um, for civil proceedings. Um, I understand that that makes it harder to enforce things like deportation. I get that. Uh, and yet, again, we're talking about civil proceedings um, and, and these people aren't criminals. So why would we do that? Uh, it, it seems cruel and unusual to me. Uh, and, and, and yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's one of the big misconceptions people have. Moving to non-immigrant visas and not to sound okay. too self-absorbed and, and self-interested, but there was a big announcement <laughs> last Monday about um, F1 students who are, you know, it's the visa you get if you're an international student. And uh, essentially ICE announced that if your school uh, is going fully online this semester because of COVID um, and you're an international student enrolled at school, you essentially have to leave the country or um, transfer to another school that is having some form of, of in-person classes, whether that's a hybrid model where some are online, some are in-person or fully in-person. There is a lawsuit going through the courts. I think the decision is is due tomorrow um, in Massachusetts. Harvard and MIT filed this this lawsuit to, to get a temporary injunction against that order. Um, I was wondering, you know, what your take on this whole... Uh, on this whole situation is and you know your your thoughts on the the likelihood of that that lawsuit success um tomorrow yeah so so um this is actually a timely issue in a lot of ways so it's timely because it has to do with this this announcement that just came out i believe last week um but what's interesting is this lawsuit's asking for a temporary restraining order uh you know and and that's the decision that might come out tomorrow is some kind of temporary restraining order preventing this rule from going into effect um, so here's, here's what we've seen from the courts recently, uh, on these kinds of actions from the Trump administration. So first let's start here. Congress has abdicated responsibility for immigration and given it to the executive branch of government. So the executive has a lot of muscle and a lot of power that they can wield over the topic of immigration. They really do. Um, and what we've seen, uh, to give an example and to compare why I believe it will lead this way. And, and also why it might not, but, but we'll go along with this example. So last year, uh, the Trump administration wanted to implement a new public charge rule. Um, and public charge, uh, is, if you take my course uh, at U of R, uh, you'll learn that it's one of the 10 grounds of inadmissibility, the top 10 reasons the U.S. keeps immigrants out of the U.S. Public charge is, in, in summary, uh, you're too poor to be in the U.S. The idea is that if you might become a public charge, uh, in the U.S., then then you can't immigrate here, um, and so uh, this new rule came out that heightened the standard of evidence that you would need to demonstrate to show that hey, I'm an immigrant coming to the U.S. and I'm not going to need to depend upon U.S. welfare to survive. Um, and so there was a court battle where um, you know, of course, multiple lawsuits asked and sought for a temporary uh, injunction preventing the rule from going into effect. And three different courts issued nationwide injunctions preventing the rule from going into effect while the litigation was pending, okay? Um, and as, as has often been the case uh, under the Trump administration, uh, these cases were fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. 
And the Supreme Court um, actually issued some interesting decisions on these issues, but essentially um, revoked uh, the temporary restraining orders. And Gorsuch wrote an opinion uh, briefly, a very short opinion, basically saying, um, hey, you know, these temporary injunctions um, just aren't going to work, right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't just do a temporary injunction that affects the entire nation. Uh, it's not appropriate. And so then we saw some responses as those cases were remanded and as other cases were coming up that the federal courts then said, okay, based on guidance from the Supreme Court, we're not going to do nationwide temporary injunctions for preventing rules from going into effect in the immigration context. It seems like the Supreme Court has spoken on that. Now, um, that's kind of what I think might likely happen here is that uh, a federal court may say, well, hey, the Supreme Court has recently spoken on this and similar issues. The federal branch, the executive branch of the federal government has wide discretion on the issue of immigration. And, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court has said, don't, don't issue nationwide temporary restraining orders. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is a very interesting issue. Um, and this is coming from very prestigious universities, right? This lawsuit that you sent me. Um, uh, you know, so who knows how the court will rule um, but I would imagine the Trump administration would appeal it and try to fast track the Supreme Court again and get a decision back before the fall semester begins. But, but uh, it hasn't, it, the news uh, is not great in my view of how the laws have been interpreted lately. Until we can get a little more certainty in the area of immigration, um, I think that it is going to depress immigration to the U.S. I mean, I think we've already seen that, that immigration numbers to the U.S. are, are lower than they've been. And, and you know, if, if you're a Trump fan and you're in the Trump administration, that, that spells victory, right? What right. you're doing is working for what you believe your policy priorities should be. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're me, that's a bad thing. I, I, you know, immigrants help our nation uh, and particularly our nation in crisis benefits from immigrants. The first knee-jerk reaction to the COVID virus was, again, and I hearken back to that, like, uh, it seemed to me for a short time, everyone was realizing, oh, gosh, we really need immigrants. Um, and, and I think that that's the that's reality. That's a perspective that reflects the world we live in. Uh, but unfortunately, that is not our current policy priorities here in the US. So one final question before I, uh, I let you go. Um, are you optimistic about immigration in the US? Are you pessimistic? Is it entirely contingent on who wins the election in November? Um, <laughs> I, I, there was a poll lately that showed that, you know, Americans have never been more pro-immigrants. I guess it's it's hard to, to you know, when no one's coming in, you can only want the numbers to go up, really. Um, but, you know, how, how how bleak is this picture for you right now? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think the immigration picture is a political one at the end of the day. Um, I think that the George Floyd protests and what happened there have influenced and kind of awakened America's conscience in a lot of important ways. Um, And and I think that that's, you know, it's so sad what happened and what has been happening uh, in certain communities and and police brutality and those kinds of things. But I think on a, on a wide range of issues, I think people are kind of opening their minds a little bit and saying, Hey, maybe we haven't been, uh, as kind as we needed to be. Maybe we haven't lived up to American ideals when it comes to these communities. Um, so when it comes to immigration though, politically immigrants can't vote. 
Um, and, and so, uh, you know, of course, uh, not until they become citizens, right? Right. But, but, you know, wide swaths of immigrants, you know, people on an H-1B can't vote. So why do I care if, uh, as a politician, I just don't pay that much attention to that issue? Yeah. And so what I think has happened is I've watched from the sideline, you know, well, I've been in the thick of it, but I'm not, I'm no politician, right? And I vote and I do all those things and I definitely encourage everybody to vote. As an armchair politician, looking at what they're doing in Congress, it, it seems to me like, uh, the politicians don't pay enough attention to immigrant voices because those voices can't vote them out of office. So um, if, if you want to change immigration and be part of, of the immigration solution, um, you know, make sure when you talk to elected officials or when you interact with elected officials that, hey, immigration is important to me. I believe immigration helps us. Um, because, uh, again, a, a lot of immigrants and a lot of very difficult immigration situations uh, aren't able to vote. But as support builds for immigrants... Uh, then perhaps we can see the uh, political will to change our broken immigration laws. So, Well, that's all we have time for for now. My thanks to Jacob Tingen and also to Sarah Clemens, our associate online editor, for helping me put this show together. We'll be back soon with another interview. In the meantime, you can follow the University of Richmond Law Review on Twitter and Instagram at URLawReview. That's all one word. Uh, see you next time. Mm-hmm.